If I tell you that today we're going to read some poetry, will you turn against me? (laughs) Uh, Then let me say at least this to you before you jump overboard. If you don't like poetry or even the idea of poetry, you're not reading it right. So today, let's read some poetry and see if there's not more than meets its reputation. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So I have been going through the Psalms lately, and a pastor at our church spoke about how to read the Psalms not too long ago, and I have loved poetry for ages. I've taught British poetry at a college in a college setting, and here at Critswell College, where I'm president, I've loved doing that. And watching people come to realize how much power is in poetry— I know it sounds funny because we all just think of poems as little blossoms coming out of the ground and confronting us in springtime with the joys of life. Uh, but that's, you know, that's not what poetry is, and that's not at all uh, what connects us uh, the way poems do to the realities of life and the world in a way that nothing else can. And so, I just want to read some poems today, and and in reading the poems, talk about them and what they reveal about how both how to read poetry, but also what makes it so potent, what gives it its ability to rip us open and show us things that we wouldn't see otherwise. And so I'm gonna I, I, what I'm going to do is uh, with you just a few, a handful of poems, and today we'll only do, I don't know, three or four at the most we'll get through probably, maybe a half dozen if we're really fortunate, uh, and just read the poem and talk about it. But these are poems that I did talk about with my uh, British uh, poetry class ages ago. I don't know how long ago it was I taught that class, and they're just examples. And all of the ones I'm choosing today are at the the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> so I'm not, uh, I'm not diving into what I think are the greatest poems in the English language. They are some of the greatest poems in the English language. I mean, you're inherently choosing the ones that are best by their nature, but I'm going all the way back to the 1500s to pick up sort of chronologically this progression in the development of English language poetry and the power that it unfolds for us. And again, I'm not, I'm not just trying to teach a literature class. I think there's something about us as human beings that uh, isn't revealed in, through other means. We just don't confront these realities, at least not in the same way. And even musically, where you reach some of the greatest depths of the human experience, in, in, in my understanding of all of this, Uh, Even music, by not necessarily relating to words, I know you can have lyrics, but that's just poetry again, but in the music itself, without having the words, there's still a little element missing, a little understanding missing 
uh, that poetry can bring to it. And so I'm, I'm not sure, I, I don't think one's more powerful than the other. They're just different. So I want to come at it with what I do know and understand and, and, and what impacts me greatly, which is poetry itself. So I'm just going to start at the beginning, read a poem, uh, sort of go back and talk about it a little bit. And I've not chosen any long poems. This first one is the longest one I'll share with you, and it's still all very short lines. I mean, three, four, five words on a single line and, uh, you know, 25 or 30 lines. So I'll read it to you. It's called Marvel No More. It's by Sir Thomas Wyatt. Uh, And it's written in the early 1500s. I mean, he only lived in the early 1500s. And so uh, he's a hugely influential thinker back in those days and one of the first people to really uh, mature the English language toward this kind of uh, expression. So anyway, here's here's the poem. It's called Marvel No More. And I don't know yet whether I'll read through the whole thing or pause along the way to make comments, but uh, let's give it a go. Here's the poem, Marvel No More. Marvel no more, although the songs I sing do moan. For other life than woe, I never prove none. And in my heart also is graven with letters deep, a thousand sighs and more a flood of tears to weep. How may a man in smart pain find matter to rejoice? How may a mourning heart set forth a pleasant voice? Play who that can that part. Needs must in me appear how fortune overthwart doth cause my mourning cheer. I'll come back and explain that section in a minute. Perdi by God, there is no man, if he never saw sight, that can perfectly tell the nature of the light. Alas, how should I then, that never tasted but sour, but do as I began, continually to lower, glower. But yet, perchance, some chance, may chance, to change my tune. And when such chance doth chance, then shall I thank fortune. And if I have chance, perchance, ere it be long, for such a pleasant chance to sing some pleasant song. Now, I, I, that's, the, that's the whole poem, and I'm not going to take all day explaining it. I just want to talk about it for a second. That's a really great poem, though. And the opening of the poem, Marvel No More That the Songs I Sing Do Moan, is him saying, why would people think that I should sing a happy song? I haven't had a happy life, and in a sorrowful life, I'm going to express sorrow. What else would I be able to do? So there's graven into my heart these letters deep with a thousand sighs and more and a flood of tears, all of that language, the powerful expression of it. And so what he says is, if that's what a man's experienced, then why is he supposed to rejoice? How may, and this is when he says this, how may a mourning heart, a sorrowing heart, set forth a pleasant voice? Play who can that part. So anybody can come up with that, go ahead. But it has never appeared yet for me, needs must yet appear in me appear, how fortune overthwart, that is how, you know, blessings, fortune, on the other side of the river, staring across at me in opposition to me, overthwart, how fortune, which is opposed to me, would cause my morning cheer. 
So I, here I am sorrowing and grieving, and you're saying to me, oh, it'll get better. You're promising me on the other side of the river, on the far bank, hope for a bright day, but I'm not experiencing that. And somehow or another, that hope on the other side of the river, opposite to what I'm facing myself, which is obviously what he's facing with these critics who are saying to him, write something happy. And he's saying, well, they, they stand over there and say that, it's never appeared to me why someone else being happier than I am, barking at me, their happiness, and saying, why aren't you happy too, would make me happy. Why would that cause my mourning, which is what I'm facing right now, to cheer? Surely you've experienced that. By the way, just let me pause in the poem and say, surely you've experienced this. I remember when my, when my granddad died, my papa that uh, and I was just a young man. I was in my 20s. Uh, and I, you know, I was a believer, absolutely committed to Christ. I was, you know, evangelizing every day, all that. And I remember somebody saying to me, well, he's in a better place now. And I just wanted to smack him in the face. I didn't. I didn't even say anything negative. I didn't say anything about it at all. But and again, I was a young man. I was immature. But, you know, I was in a moment of grieving and pain. And I'm not sure I would feel differently about it today. But I really, I, I, I mean, it made me angry that they said that. Why would you tell me it's all okay? Does this look okay? Why are you saying this to me? So I really empathize with Thomas Wyatt saying this, and this is part of his point. He's sharing something not only that's deeply true for him, personally true for him, but something he knows other people experience too. I mean, something that at least we identify with because we can identify with what he's going through. And so when he says, you know, how, how would I, who've never tasted anything but sour, do anything but lour like this? And that is glowering, I think, is the idea. Uh, so you're, you know, you're just being, you know, having a, a, a sorrow expressed grimacing, uh, sorrow expressed on your face. Uh, the image that he uses there, by the way, the metaphor, which in reading poetry, which you're always looking for is, What's the metaphor that they're using? What's the analogy that they're creating? And so you look for the metaphor, and one of them here is really sharp, this one. He, if, if he never saw sight, so there's no man who's never seen, so a, a man who's blind, there is no man, if he never saw sight, that perfectly can tell the nature of the light. So you, you don't say to a blind man, what does orange look like? And, and what he's saying is, so why would you say to a sorrowing person, tell us something about joy? If he's never seen joy, why would he describe joy? Which tells you how deeply Thomas Wyatt is crying out from a position of sorrow and loss and a feeling like he's never even seen joy uh, for others to understand where his sorrow is coming from. And the, even at the end, I mean, look how many chances he puts into the end of the, the, the poem. I'm saying metaphorically, I know you can't see on the radio, although you could look it up, you can just Google this and find it, I'm sure. Marvel No More is the name of the poem. You look at the end of it. But yet, perchance, some chance, may chance to change my tune. And when, which is its own barrier between him and there, and when such chance doth chance, then, then I'll be willing to thank fortune. Not going to thank it now because it's not here then I'll be willing to thank fortune. He's not done yet. Then he says, and if, so another barrier. When? Well, let's back up a layer. There's another barrier. If, if I have chance 
perchance, ere it be long, for such a pleasant chance. He's removed that pleasant chance so many steps from where he is that we should recognize how impossible it is he's ever going to arrive at it by this point. Yet perchance some chance may chance to change. When such chance does chance, then I'll thank fortune. But if I have chance, perchance, ere it be long, for such a pleasant, finally he got to it, chance. Then, only then, fine, I'll give in to you. If and when, perchance to sing some pleasant song. <laughs> Even just the dismissive tone of that line, to sing some pleasant song. Authors add in, this is, this is a typical, by the way, style of poetry. Not, not style as in genre, but I mean of content. Authors ad infinitum throughout all of history have not only written about their suffering, which is one thing, there's plenty of that also, but also written about the wonder, here it's marvel no more, of those who would tell them to buck up and it'll all be okay. And you, you know what's so powerful about this poem to me is not just the way it's communicated, which is brilliant. No matter how many times you read it, oh, and let me pause and give another rule about poetry. I've said this about reading before. Number one, the rule that I gave was find the metaphor. That's what you're always looking for. What's the What's the analogy? What's the metaphor? What's the figurative image language that he's giving so that, or that the poet is giving so that you can have something to grasp the concept that he's actually dealing with or that the poet, I'm just using the pronoun he, the poet is actually dealing with, whoever it is. So looking for the metaphors first. But second is this rule, and actually this is the first rule, which is a two-part rule anyway, and that is that the, you can't read poetry. You can only reread poetry. I say that about other things, too. All good literature is this way. There's no reading. Uh, I learned this from a, a liter literature professor I had when I was in my undergrad program. Uh, she said, Ann Miller, she said, you know, there's no reading. There's only rereading. I've said it a hundred times in different uh, contexts on the radio and now uh, in this uh, podcast. But, I, but I, it's absolutely true. You can't pick up a poem and read it one time and say, oh, that, that just didn't do, it, did, didn't do it for me. Well, of course not, not yet. Because it, it, it is so, there is so much packed into a poem. And not even saying you couldn't get the narrative or the backstory to a poem immediately. Maybe you can. Maybe you can pick up all the vocabulary and sort of pick up the key image that's there. But the whole point of the poem is that it strikes you one way when you're coming at it from that first angle, but when you come at it with a little familiarity, even if you recognize all the words, you realize that they carry another layer of meaning to them as well. That's, that's one of the most powerful things about poetry, that in logic, for instance, we're looking for one meaning for one word. That's why you create terms and you say, this is what I mean, and so X implies A, and A implies Y, and therefore X implies Y, and everything, you know, whatever. One term, one use, it's, it, you know, it's univocal language is what it's called, univocal. This, and then th in logic, this is terrible, but in po that, that's good, univocal language. But in logic, amb ambiguity, any kind of equivocal language is terrible. But in poetry, it's beautiful. In poetry, you need layers of meaning in order to reach down into the layers 
that people are willing to tolerate when they're reading words. You read something and you have barriers put up to how far you're going to let it go inside of you. And as you read poetry again and again, it just strips away those layers and you finally begin to see what's being revealed, what's being opened up, not just about the universe, but about you as well. Okay, yeah, I like poetry. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, so here's the thing. I don't, I don't just like poetry because it's poetry. I like it because it really does. It speaks most powerfully to things that are otherwise neglected. Let me give you another one. This is a simple example, a good one. Thomas Wyatt again, same person, same author. Uh, and this is, again, these are early 1500s. Poetry only gets better over time. So these are the most naive form of poetry, and I don't mean that insultingly, but I do mean, uh, you know, we've developed a lot our willingness to put up with much more sophisticated forms of poetry over time. But these super simple forms of poetry are still very powerful, and they communicate things that are, that are emotional for us. So listen to this one, and this one has a great, uh, a great uh, analogy in it, too. This one has a great metaphor. Try to identify it as I'm reading through it, then I'll go back and, and talk about it a little bit. Uh, by Thomas White, description of the contrarious passions in a lover. A person in love, contrarious passions, you can understand, self, self-defeating passions. I find no peace, and all my war is done. I fear and hope. I burn and freeze like ice. I fly aloft, yet can I not rise. And not I have and all the world I seize on, that locks nor looseth, holdeth me in prison, and holds me not, yet can I escape no wise, nor letting me live nor die at my device, and yet of death it gives me occasion. Without eye I see, without tongue I plain explain. I wish to perish, yet I ask for health. I love another, and I hate myself. I feed me in sorrow and laugh in all my pain. Lo, thus displeaseth me both death and life. And my delight is causer of this strife. I mean, so, you know, I mean, obviously, love and joy and friendship and happiness on one side of the poem, everything so great. I'm flying aloft and, you know, I'm, I'm, I have no more war and I'm freed from the prison and I've escaped and I'm seeking health and I can explain and, you know, so on. All of the good stuff. And then the total opposite of that in the other part of this person. And, you know, the, again, this one's super simple, but it's still rich in what it's able to communicate just by the tension, the irony we would call it, the tensions that are created in these juxtapositions of opposites. I, I, I burn and freeze like ice. I'm flying aloft, but I can't arise. I can't even get out of bed. Even though I'm flying aloft, I can't get myself out of bed. I don't have anything, and yet the whole world is within my grasp. You know, what, whatever it is that would, that would lock me in or release me, it holds me in the prison, and it can't hold me. I escape, but I can't escape. I, 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 it, and whatever that is that's tied me down in this way and releases me, 
it, it won't let me live, but it also won't let me die. I'm trying to live my life, but I'm so caught up in this, I can't, and, and then I can't die. Oh, I wish I could just die, and I can't even do that because I'm drawn back to this thing. And so, he, and on and on he goes. So the point is, in this poem, you know, you have this juxtaposition of love and joy and friendship and happiness, but they are not just juxtaposed, not just happening to be next to this, but they are proportionate with hate and pain and betrayal and misery. It's not a happenstance. It's not a confusion. It's the nature of these emotions, these experiences. And not just because we're quirky people, but because of the nature of those experiences themselves. So I, I, I've, I've talked about this ages and ages ago. I doubt anybody ever, would ever remember that I brought this up. But I was outside of a Walmart one night when I realized how, how profound this was that I, I heard this person just cursing. I mean, just as, as hateful a language as I could possibly imagine into their phone. And uh, I've, you know, I've joked about it. I mean, it was outside of Walmart, so people aren't that surprised this was happening, right? Because a lot of weird things happen at Walmart, people walking around in pajamas and stuff, whatever. Not saying I've never done that, but I don't think I've ever done that. But I'm not quite sure, which tells you what, it, what what's going on at Walmart. Anyway, Walmart, great place. No criticism. I'm just saying, you know, people are weird sometimes. So, yeah, no, but no great surprise. Person out cursing into their phone. And who are they cursing to? Well, they're telling their friend... They're cursing because they're telling their friend about this person that they loved so much that has betrayed them, right? So I don't remember what it was now. I can't remember whether they were divorcing them or they left them or they whatever. I don't know what it was that happened. But it, but it is a realization that the only, the only person you could hate that much is someone that you loved that much, right? The only person that you could have that much pain from is a person that you found that much comfort in before, Otherwise, it wouldn't hurt that much. I mean, when a stranger aggravates you on the street, unless you're just, you know, really amped up on caffeine and out of control and maybe armed yourself a little too readily, you know, get a little road rage going, uh, you know, with the exception of those weird moments in which, by the way, we're actually just taking out our frustration about things that did matter on whoever that is. In reality, I mean, somebody cuts you off on the street, you just kind of go, ah, you know, and you know, one second later, it's fine. It's no big deal. You're moving on down the road because they're not ingrained in your life. And so this, this poem is making that point that, you know, it's in, and he's not describing a person who's even being jilted. He's not describing a person who's hurting. He's just saying, once you invite these emotions in, these passions in, you have swung the pendulum, right? So you decided to swing the pendulum all the way to the wall. Well, there are two walls in the room, buddy, you know, so that's what he's pointing out. And it's a, that's, a, that's a powerful lesson for people to learn. And it's in a 14-line poem. Yeah, I don't like sonnets, but still it's a 14-line poem, so it'll do. <laughs> okay, and I say that, and then I'm going to read you a sonnet. I'm not even a fan of sonnets, but even some of the sonnets, because they're, they're just so rigid and so simplistic in some ways, but so powerful in other ways. I know I'm wrong for not liking them, so I, but I do love this one, by the way. So here's another example. And by the way, this is an example of poetry and how, how poetry is so powerful, so compelling that, that sometimes the authors who are writing poetry know that the real evidence of the depth of what they're communicating is actually in the poem itself. And so poems have a lot of self-referential stuff uh, where, and especially in the early days of poetry, 
where the immortality of the, of the poem's object was going to be embedded in the poem itself. This is where you'll live forever. Uh, by the way, even Shakespeare, the most famous sonnet he ever wrote, Shall I Compare Thee to a summer day, Summer's Day, is a poem about that. Well, you'll outlive a summer's day because you're in this poem now. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, it's actually a great poem for that reason. For other reasons, it's a little trite, but whatever. Here's one by Edmund Spencer. So again, just a tiny step forward from Thomas Wyatt that we were reading a moment ago. So Edmund, forward in chronology, I mean. So Edmund Spencer. Happy ye leaves. We don't know what he's talking about right off the bat, but I, but I will say just to give context to the period and the way the words are used, leaves are pages. So the leaves of a book, right? So not just leaves falling from a tree in this case. And you'll hear, because this is self-referential about the poem, you'll hear as we go through how the, the, the key metaphor is the poem itself. And then, and then the underlying metaphors are about all the things that he compares the poem with, right? So, happy ye leaves, when as those lily hands, which hold my life in their dead doing might, shall handle you, and hold in love's soft bands, like captives trembling at the victor's sight. That's a, that's a great quatrain of poetic lines. I know, hard to get when you're listening, so I'm going to read them to you again. But what I want you to hear is him saying this, Ah, you pages are going to be so happy when the hands I'm describing, the lily-white hands, <laughs> lily hands, uh, are holding you, these pages. Not holding me, but holding the book that I've produced. Uh, you will be the things that are blessed, you words that are held by those hands. So uh, the, the victor sight, you know, this, uh, she will see these words and understand how great his love is or just the fact that they're being appreciated by her is enough for him. So anyway, happy ye leaves when as those lily hands which hold my life in their dead doing might shall handle you and hold in love's soft bands like captives trembling at the victor's sight. And happy lines, now it's from leaves, pages, to lines. And happy lines on which with starry light those lamping eyes will deign sometimes to look and read the sorrows of my dying sprite spirit, written with tears in heart's close bleeding book. This is, I mean, that's beautiful. That's powerful language. Ah, you lines that I'm writing right now. Can you imagine what it'll be like when her eyes are bothering to open the book and look at you? Look at you and see in there my heart poured out on these pages. And happy rhymes bathed in the sacred brook of Helicon, whence she derived is. She's come out of this source of beauty and eternal goodness, right? And happy rhymes bathed in the sacred brook of Helicon when she derived is, when you behold, so she's also like his, uh, you know, inspiration for this beauty. When you behold that angels blessed look, so that angel will be looking on you and you get to behold her looking at you. These pages get to see her face. When you behold that angels blessed look, my soul's long-lacked food, my heaven's bliss. 
And then the last two lines, leaves, lines, and rhymes, seek her to please alone, whom, if you please, I care for other none. So the, the self-referential nature of it is why I brought that one up, because a lot of poems are that way, but they're not, they're not really just about themselves. I mean, they're reflecting the beauty of their subject. That's the point, for the beauty to, 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 to be reflected. It's like a mirror of what's going on in that person. And for the poet, Edmund Spencer, in this case, to, to write about it that way is for him to say, oh, look, my poem is a mirror for this person's beauty. It's really, it's really pretty magnificent. So the power, and, and the poetry itself also obviously stands in for the poet. In this case, that's the key metaphor. He is the poem. He is the book. And he's wishing she were holding him, but she's holding his book. And so it's able to look up into her eyes and, and, and so on. Now, the fact, by the way, I'm going to pause here for just one second. The fact that he spends so much effort describing the poem in a way that it takes the place of the poet says something about today's social media. Not getting off on this, not trying to run off on technology, not trying to bash social media. I'm just saying what it is. But that idea that you create yourself in the expressions that you put out for others to behold is not new to social media. It is more common among people to be able to do it because you don't have to find a publisher or a patron to be able to pay for your words to be printed and shared. You just get on, well, Twitter. If it doesn't go bankrupt, who knows what's going to happen with that. Or on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever all those other things are that you get on. And you create these lines, whether it's in movements or if it's in words themselves, for people to look at. And you say, oh, they're looking at me. They're, they're getting to know me. This makes it social. We're interacting. In what way is social media any different from this poem where he's saying, I have put my heart on this page and now we're going to interact because you're going to be able to look at the page. Hey, come see my page and you'll know about me. How is that not social media, by the way? It used to be a lot better, though, when, when it was written in poem poetry. Okay, so anyway, you can still find poetry online. It's still good stuff. Ooh, next. Uh, let's do another one. This one's Robert Southwell, written by Robert Southwell. Very, uh, you know, Christian-y writing. Okay. This is called, this is a famous poem. You, you will probably recognize this right away. There's something worth bringing up in this one, by the way, at the end, doctrinally, actually theologically in a minute. So Robert Southwell says this in The Burning Babe. As I, in hoary winter's night, stood shivering in the snow, surprised I was with sudden heat, which made my heart to glow. And lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, a pretty babe, all burning bright, did in the air appear, who scorched with excessive heat such floods of tears did shed as though his flood should quench his flames, which with his tears, though, were fed. Alas, quoth he, but newly born in fiery heats, I fry. Yet none approach to warm their hearts or feel my fire, but I. My faultless breast the furnace is, the fuel wounding thorns. Love is the fire and sighs the smoke, the ashes, shame, and scorns. The fuel justice layeth on, and mercy blows the coals. 
the metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls, for which as now on fire I am to work them to their good. So will I melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. With this, he vanished out of sight and swiftly shrunk away. And straight, immediately, straight, I called unto mind that it was Christmas Day. Now, I know it's not Christmas, but we are approaching the holidays, so it's appropriate for that reason that we'll bring up this poem. But it's also, do you, so the, you know, when I, when I gave this to my students in a class, by the way, they pointed this out, and this is correct. You read it and you think, wow, how weird that they would put together the imagery of a baby burning. And it's just so yuck. I mean, scorched in excessive heat. And the baby talks about frying and it's all bad. And yet it's supposed to be this beautiful image. What a weird poem. No, I mean, that's the poem. You're not missing it at all if you see that. That's it. There's this beautiful baby, but it, but it's burning. And yeah, it's bright. So maybe it would be beautiful, but he corrects that immediately. It's scorched. And the heat is excessive. And it's a flood of tears that you think, oh, surely that'll put out the fire. This, this baby's weeping, the suffering that the baby is facing. Surely that will stop the fire, but it just fed the flames. And then the baby himself says, I'm frying in this fiery heat. And yet no one will come. No one's responding. And he go, the baby is going on to speak and to say, my faultless breast, so my chest is open and faultless, that's the furnace. Wounding thorns are the fuel of this fire. Love is the fire itself. The smoke are my sighs rising up. This is very biblical, obviously, from the revelation, the prayers of the saints rising up as the smoke forever and so on. The fuel wounding thorns and so on. The fuel justice lays on. Mercy is blowing on the coals. All of those descriptions are supposed to be catawampus. It, it, it doesn't go with this baby. You know, why is this happening to a baby? And obviously we know, I mean, we've read the poem now. We know from the end, Christmas Day. Oh, so we're describing Christ. We're describing the Messiah. But he's being described as a little baby. Well, this is the meaning of Christmas. Obviously, that, that, that Christ comes into the world, and from that moment, remember, his, his mother in anguish anticipates the sorrow that will be his. And so he's experiencing that, and he's saying, why am I doing all of this? Well, the, the metal in this furnace, in his chest, remember, is a furnace now. The, the metal in that furnace are the men, the souls, that I'm working into a, a different shape to, to their good. The metal in this furnace rod are men's defiled souls, for which, as now on fire, I'm to work them to their good. So I'll melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. So I'm, I'm willing to go all the way through this, not just to have the fire and the pain, but actually to be melted myself into oblivion so that these men can, these, these human beings can be made over again into their good by being washed in my blood. Beautiful you know, telling of Christian redemption, obviously the atonement. All of that has a, you know, uh, so uh, look, there's this uh, theological debate that people have had uh, about Christ's ongoing suffering. And there's a sense in uh, the tradition that I grew up in, and I don't mean from when I was a little child, but in the 
you know, the intervening tradition that I've mentioned on here before. I, I don't want to be specific about it right this moment. Uh, in that tradition, there was a sense of offense at the idea of, uh, and, and there, the, the normal attack was on uh, crucifixes. So if you had Jesus on a cross, displayed on a cross, you were acting as if Christ were still suffering on our behalf, and that's evil. Uh, because, you know, he paid the price on the cross, and there's no more suffering, and, it, and it's done, and now it's all joy and, and, and rejoicing, and everything's finished. But, you know, there's a, I mean, there's a truth to that. He's, he's not still on the cross, obviously, and he doesn't relive the cross. It, it was an event in that moment for eternity, and so we rejoice in that, and that's part of the deal of offering the sacrifice once and being done. And yet, with the sacrifice offered once and done, our priest remains in the holiest place on our behalf, ever living, as the author of Hebrews puts it, to make intercession for the saints. It's in Hebrews 7. That's the language. He continues forever with this unchangeable priesthood. And so I'm saying there was this controversy that I was aware of when I was younger in, in my studies and just in my Christianity where people would say, no, Jesus doesn't, and it's not just the impassibility of God, that God can't have any emotions at all. That debate is a separate debate. This, this debate is assuming he does have emotions and that he is willing to respond to us, which I think is automatic in the nature of the person of Christ. Is he still suffering? Does he still experience pain? Does he still experience sorrow? And I think, you know, if you take Hebrews 4, for instance, we don't have a high priest who is untouched, who is unable to be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted like as we are. Yeah, his temptations are over. Yes, his experience of suffering in this world is over, but ours isn't, and because he's our intercessor, not just some cold, paid advocate before the Father to enunciate the clarification that sin is no longer pertinent to this person's life because he's justified. It's not that. He is, a, he is a priest who bears our sins on his own soul to the Father. And because the crucifixion makes that sacrifice complete, done, not, not being offered over and over again, because of what he has done that is finished, he can take the burdens that we have today and bear them for us to the Father. And, I mean, that's the language. He continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. He is constantly, always living to make intercession for them. And so today he makes that intercession for Now, I'm saying all of that just to give a little theological background to make the point that when some people would read this poem, you know, the response would naturally be to say, oh, that's just weird because Jesus doesn't suffer anymore and I don't I don't think we should picture him as a burning baby in the sky, which, of course, is a weird image, but I mean it's the image to make the point that he still burns with desire to change us into something better, and he still grieves when we don't come, and he's still willing to bathe us in his blood. He's still willing to take on those sorrows for himself. All that in a poem. Yeah, the burning babe. So anyway, there is another example. Ah, nothing like this one, though. Man. Okay, I'm about to read you one from Ben Johnson. This is going to get heavy. Don't give up on me. It's a short poem. We won't stay in the heavy for too long, okay? Stay with me, though. This is a powerful poem. Ben Johnson had a rough time. Uh, he, had a, uh, he, has, he has two poems. 
like this. He has one called uh, For My Daughter or uh, On My Daughter's Death or something like that. He had a, a little baby that died, and they buried her, and he wrote a poem about it, okay? Then there's this poem called On My First Son. This is a little different, not a baby. You'll hear it as we're reading through it. But, but again, don't give up on me. Hang, hang in there for the poem. But I do want to make the point that the power of it, it takes language like this to address sorrow like this. And you can imagine him writing this for someone next to the grave. Haven't even started reading the poem yet. I'll, I'll, I'll buck up here to give the opposite of what Sir Thomas Wyatt said. So here we go. <clears throat> On my first son, Ben Johnson. Farewell, thou child of my right hand, and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. Seven years, though, were it lent to me, and I thee pay. I'll come back and explain this line. And I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, could I lose all father now. Most likely it's loose. This is how they wrote the word then. Oh, could I release, loose, all fathers, father, now. For why will man lament the state he should envy? To have so soon escaped worlds and flesh's rage. And if no other misery, yet age, rest in soft peace. And asked, say, quote, Here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry. For whose sake, henceforth, all his vows be such, as what he loves may never like too much. Let me explain just a few lines in that poem uh, so that we kind of grasp it. Again, you're at a disadvantage. You're hearing someone read it instead of being able to look at it unless you've sat down and opened it up and, and looked at it, which I encourage you to do at some point if you get the opportunity. Uh, but also, you're only hearing it once or twice, and so it's really tricky. So uh, let me just give a couple of the lines from it. Uh, when he says, seven years though, that, it's not though, it's thou. So seven years thou wert lent to me, although he probably said though, that's how he has it written. Seven years thou wert lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. So he's saying, uh, he use, he's using the imagery, the, the metaphor of, of a loan. And he's, so he's saying, so I took out a loan of seven years with you. And what was he experiencing in those seven years? Joy. My sin was too much hope of you, loved boy. Seven years you were lent to me. But now I'm paying back my seven years on this one day, exacted by thy fate. So I've paid it all back in this one moment of grief. And then he says, so I, but, but, but then he turns and he says, that's not the end of it. His point now is to say, but, but that, that would be a misunderstanding. I wish I could reach out to all the fathers in history, to what it is to be a father, and release them from this kind of sorrow. Why would man lament the, lament the state that he should envy? I mean, to, to have so soon, after only seven years, escaped the world's rage, to have escaped the flesh's rage, so the outside world against us, 
the rage within yourself that will war against you as you grow older, that, that my son has escaped this, that our sons have escaped this. And even if they weren't going to have any other misery, just the fact that they didn't have to grow old. Now, again, he's not saying he wouldn't want the child to have lived. He's not saying we should abandon life. But he is saying there is something to be thankful for, that that sorrow doesn't follow. And then this most beautiful of all lines and so powerful. I mean, this is what I wanted to get at today just to make the point that once this is said, you know, it becomes a common expression. I remember David Bowie using uh, this line or a line similar to it when he described for himself his greatest work. And I have no doubt he's drawing it. He was drawing it before his own death, David Bowie's death. His son is still alive. Uh, about the thing that he valued most in this life. When Ben Johnson says this in the poem, he says to his son in the ground, rest in soft peace. And if anyone asks you, he just says, and asked, say, if anyone asks you, say this, here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry. I mean, Ben Johnson, you know, this is one of the greatest poets in English literary history. And there's no competition here. Here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry. Tells you the kind of love that he had for his son and the appreciation he had for that son's life. And then when he says, for, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such, as what he loves may never like too much, meaning I'll never recover from this. From this point forward in my life, I will never be able to see things with the same color that I used to because my best poem has already been written and now it lies in the ground. And so, as, and again, I get that you hear that and, it, and it's just all sorrow and loss, but, but again, remember it's not because he's bringing redemption to it by saying, I recognize that this is my greatest work of poetry, and just like all of his words will be on a page after his life, this son's life, the seven years that he lived, will always be a testimony to what his life was about, about that, that relationship. So while I, look, and I'm done here, but while I hate to end on a poem, I don't really. I love that poem. It's powerful. You can imagine. Can you imagine at a graveside sharing that? So, but, but I do, I mean, I'll say it for, for our sake, you know, for it's a podcast for crying out loud. So on an episode of a podcast, I will say, I hate to end on a poem that has such heavy content, the, the, but the power of redemption expressed in that, and it's the antepenultimate set of lines there. It illustrates what makes that kind of poem worthwhile that you, you don't read it and then just suffocate in it. You read it, and you realize that there is a way to dig down deep enough inside of yourself that you can open up even the most difficult things in your life. That's redemptive. This is, this is what confession is about, for instance. You know, when, when God tells us we need to confess our sins, in 1 John 1, for instance, it's not just in the simple therapeutic sense, and it's not just, it's not in the retributive sense. 
it's this, this reality that you don't have to live with that anymore. You don't have to bury it. You don't have to experience only misery in opening yourself up to express it honestly and truly and painfully and powerfully so that you could never even see color the same way again, as he says at the end of the poem. You find redemption. You find this meaning that you realize is always present in the lives that we have here. And, you know, as that pastor I was mentioning, Winston Hopman, as, as he uh, said recently at our church, teaching us about how to read the Psalms as poetry, if we don't learn to love great poetry, we will always be neglecting a huge portion of what God has given us in the Scriptures, in the Psalms. So, here's to poetry, and hopefully a little more trusting relationship with it for all of us. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.